Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's HQ in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, June 20th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The FDA is considering a fascinating question. How do you judge a drug that's supposed to increase sexual desire? We'll talk about the debate around a new treatment from AMAG Pharmaceuticals. Next up, we're going to put on our true crime podcasting hats and talk about the first murder trial stemming from a new forensic technique that uses family trees to track down alleged criminals. One of the all caps big ideas in biotech is longevity research. But the first glimpse of clinical data from a life extending company has been polarizing. Our colleague Matt Herper joins us to explain. And last but not least, we'll bring you another lightning round. That'll mean hot takes on Elizabeth Holmes's wedding, the latest on the biotech IPO market, and why Google's AI system confused an image of a cat with guacamole. But first, a word from StatPlus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a StatPlus subscription. StatPlus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. So if you're developing a drug for cancer, you need to prove that it actually shrinks tumors if you want the FDA to approve it. Same goes if you've got a diabetes drug, it has to lower blood sugar, and if you've got a painkiller, it had better reduce pain. But as we speak, the FDA is considering a more nebulous question. How do you evaluate a drug that's supposed to increase sexual desire? Yeah, so any day now, the FDA is going to make a decision on a drug called Vilesi. It's a treatment from AMAG Pharmaceuticals that is meant to treat female hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD. And that's defined as a decreased desire for sex that causes women distress. Vilesi has revived an old debate about whether sexual desire can really be a matter of pharmaceutical science. And there are some strongly held opinions on both sides of that question. Damien, you wrote a story on Vilesi and HSDD this week. So tell us, is this going to become the female Viagra? So the short answer is no, but it's complicated. The longer answer is that, you know, that phrase female Viagra, which is mostly used by those of us in the media and, and maybe lay people, not so much scientists or drug companies, it's interesting for two reasons. One, invoking the word Viagra underlines the huge disparity in drugs for sexual wellness. There are more than 20 approved for men and just one approved for women. But it also underlines a really important scientific point. Viagra is a drug that targets arousal. Basically, the model is a man feels desire, but he can't get aroused, so he takes a pill and on your way. Vilesi and other drugs for HSDD have nothing to do with arousal. They target desire, what precedes that, a desire or lack thereof, I guess. So basically, the idea is that women would take these drugs because they want to want to have sex. And I think that's a really important distinction in, in thinking about the issue. So Damien, I guess the important question here is, does Vilesi actually work? Does it increase desire? So that's complicated, too. So Palatin Technologies, which is the company that AMAG licensed Vilesi from, ran a pair of large trials to answer that question. And in those studies, the drug met its two main goals, which were increasing desire and reducing distress. But the numbers here, especially with desire, are pretty small. 
So the company measured desire on a five-point scale that was based on a questionnaire, basically asking women how often and how intensely they wanted to have sex. And that ranged from a complete lack of sex drive on the low end and an arguably hyperactive one on the high end. So as to the actual results, patients who took the drug improved by a little more than half a point on that five-point scale. So that sounds like a pretty small benefit, and you know numerically it is, but I did talk to a couple of clinical psychologists who said that for women with HSDD, what looks like a marginal improvement to us can make a world of difference in terms of getting them back to a place where they feel normal about their sex lives. So that means that someone had to have defined what a normal amount of desire looks like. What is that? Exactly. And that, I think, is the most fascinating question raised by this drug and, and this whole field of study. AMAG and the doctors they work with would say that normalcy is subjective. The goal of the drug is to help each woman with HSDD get back to her subjective definition of normal sexual desire. But critics of this field of science, and there are lots of them, would argue that the whole concept of HSDD is pathologizing sexuality by telling women that this is a medical issue rather than just whatever they feel being how they feel. And if they feel distressed by it, then they can address it by means other than a pill or an injection. To a lot of sex therapists, a distressing lack of desire is is not a biological problem at all, but rather it's a complex issue that can be tied to relationships, behavior, culture, religious background, basically all of the macro influencers on human development. So to them, the idea of, you know, just take a pill is not only minimizing, but sort of philosophically dangerous. Damien, as you mentioned before, you know, this wouldn't be the first approved treatment for HSDD. So what happened to the last product? Right. So people may remember back in 2015, we as a society had very much this same conversation around a drug called Adye from Sprout Pharmaceuticals, which was eventually approved for HSDD. If you cut to today, Adye has been basically a total commercial failure. I looked at data and sales are down by about 95% since the drug was launched. Sprout, the company that, that developed it, is now selling it on the internet through one of those online drug retailers that advertise on the subway. And, you know, it's kind of unclear what the commercial future might be. But Adye's commercial fate is not necessarily indicative of what's going to happen to Vilesi. There are some important differences. You know, for one, Adye is a pill that you have to take every day. Vilesi is a self-administered injection that you take only when you, like we said before, want to want to have sex. And furthermore, the probably the most important distinction is that in Addie's clinical trials, there were signs that women who took the drug with alcohol could experience low blood pressure and fainting, which is obviously dangerous. And so on the approved label was a contraindication with alcohol, which, you know, if you have a passing understanding of the history of human behavior, you would know that if you've got a drug for sexual dysfunction that's contraindicated with alcohol, that could be problematic for people. So that put a huge damper on sales. And analysts don't expect Vilesi to have a similar safety label if, in fact, it wins approval. And is Vilesi going to get approved? That's a great question. So it depends on whom you ask. Now, when I spoke with people in the analyst community, they all assume it's going to be approved, but assume that it will not be much of a contributor to revenue for AMAG Pharmaceuticals, kind of for all the reasons we stated above in terms of the nebulous nature of this disease, the fact that it has to be injected, and the sales history of Addy, which, as we mentioned, is not terribly exciting from a capitalism perspective. But it's not impossible that the FDA, knowing that there's already a treatment for HSDD out there, will reject it. The FDA did not hold one of its advisory committee meetings where they invite outside experts to debate a drug for Vilesi. You could look at that as saying they're ready to rubber stamp it and give it an approval. Or you could look at that as saying they've already made up their minds to reject it and they don't want to waste the time of their experts. But we'll find out in the coming days. 
first double murder trial to use genetic genealogy in Washington just got underway today. I'm Dave Wagner. And I'm Amy Clancy. The two people killed were found in two separate counties more than three decades ago. And what you just heard is local TV news coverage of a murder trial in Washington state that's attracting attention far beyond the Snohomish County Courthouse where it's being held. The trial's getting national attention. It even made the New York Times wildly popular podcast, The Daily, because it's the first in which the defendant was apprehended using a new technique known as forensic genealogy that's created a revolution in how law enforcement cracks cold cases. Yeah, so the technique involves taking DNA collected from the crime scene, sequencing it, and then comparing it to the data that consumers have uploaded to public genealogy databases online. These are the kind that people use to track down long-lost cousins or unknown siblings. And as you might imagine, this technique in law enforcement has been a bit controversial because of the implications for genetic privacy and the possibility that someone could be falsely accused of a crime based on what some cousin uploaded to a genealogy family tree website. So the approach first emerged a little over a year ago when it was used for the first time to identify the alleged serial killer accused of being the Golden State Killer who committed a series of rapes and murders across California in the 1970s and 1980s. The man accused of being the Golden State Killer is not expected to face trial for many months. And that's why there's a big spotlight on this murder trial currently unfolding in Washington state. That's because it's poised to offer a test of whether forensic genealogy can hold sway in a courtroom as a method for apprehending suspects. So Rebecca, I know you've been following this case pretty closely. Can you give us a background on this murder trial in particular? Yeah, so this trial dates back to 1987 when a young Canadian couple disappeared. Uh, the couple was Tanya Van Kolenborg, she was 17, and Jay Cook, he was 20. So they headed down from their home in British Columbia to Seattle for a quick overnight trip. They were last seen on a ferry. And then no one ever saw them again. Their family reported them missing, and their bodies were found not long after. Van Kullenberg had been raped and shot, and Cook had been strangled. So police chased leads for decades. For a while, they were convinced that the couple had been killed by a hitchhiker. But last year, after the Golden State Killer case was cracked using forensic genealogy, investigators used the technique for this case, too. And they were able to land upon a suspect named William Talbot II based on some DNA that distant relatives had uploaded online. And he was ultimately charged with their murders and is facing trial now. So Rebecca, what is happening in the courtroom right now? Yeah, so it's been really interesting to watch this genealogy element of the trial play out. Both sides have been kind of downplaying the technique. I think they don't want this, you know, sort of local trial to become sort of a, a flashpoint for, you know, some new technology in the field. And so both sides have kind of agreed that this should be seen as a way of, of generating leads, you know, not unlike someone calling in by phone to, to report something they had seen. But at the same time, the two sides, the prosecution and the defense, have been sparring over you know, sort of what the implications of these genetic matches were. The defense is saying that, you know, just because there's this DNA link, it doesn't fill in the gaps of what may have happened between when the couple was last seen and when their bodies were discovered. So why do you think this trial, which would normally be kind of a local news story, 
is getting so much national attention. Yeah, so I think it's an interesting test of whether this technique can ultimately persuade jurors. You know, it's never something that's been tested in a courtroom before. And it'll be interesting to see if the jurors in this case ultimately judge it differently than they would sort of, you know, the more traditional methods of uh, tracking down a suspect. It's also, I think, a uniquely pure case in that there's not much other corroborating evidence um, that links the defendant Talbot to the murders of this couple. And so it's it's sort of this like very well-designed clinical trial where they're only testing this sort of one intervention. And so I think this more than perhaps a more complicated case where there's all sorts of different corroborating evidence will sort of shine light on whether jurors are willing to buy this new method of cracking cold cases. So, Rebecca, I think it's really interesting here in that, you know, you say the prosecutors and, and even the defense sort of are trying to downplay the use or the importance of the forensic genealogy in this case. But at the same time, like you said, there isn't a lot of physical evidence or any other kind of evidence upon which the prosecution can use to make its case. So, like, how are they going to sort of reconcile those two things? Yeah, it'll be an interesting kind of balancing act to watch. You know, I think from a scientific standpoint, it's pretty cut and dry. You know, the accused killer's DNA very closely matches the sample. Court documents say that the odds that his DNA is not this one are one in 180 quadrillion. Um, So it'll be interesting to see sort of how that science plays in and how the arguments of each side are shaped by this technique. Well, and what's interesting, Rebecca, to your point before about this being such a tidy clinical trial is that, you know, if I'm the defense attorney here, it's not just my client who's on trial, it's also this method of bringing charges against people, the genealogy method. So I have to argue for that quadrillionary chance. And so I guess my curiosity is, you know, do you feel like the outcome of this trial might have pretty serious bearings on this method used in other cold cases. Like if this Talbot guy is found not guilty, what might that mean for this burgeoning field? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a possibility. And if, say, the jury ultimately does not convict him thinking that this evidence is not strong enough, I think it could definitely shape the extent to which prosecutors in future cases rely on on this evidence. You know, they may feel that that's not enough. They need to go back to kind of the more traditional shoe leather gathering of clues and tips and other corroborating evidence before using that as the backbone of their case. research is a big and tantalizing idea in life sciences. It's a field that seeks to tinker with human biology to extend the amount of time people live free from pain and disease. One pretty major obstacle, though, is that aging is not a disease, and longevity is not something that the FDA recognizes as a medical indication. And that means that developing a longevity drug is a fairly fraught proposition. That brings us to Unity Biotechnology, the first anti-aging drug developer to go public. Earlier this week, Unity disclosed some polarizing early data that, depending on whom you ask, either bolsters the promise of longevity science or underlines its serious challenges. Joining us to discuss Unity and its first airing of human clinical data is our colleague, Matt Herper. Matt, welcome as always to the podcast. It's always great to be here. 
So Matt, this might be kind of a tall order, but as briefly as you can, can you explain to us the scientific thesis upon which Unity was founded and why it's considered such a big idea in aging research? Sure. I mean, it's kind of pretty simple to explain. It's just really audacious. The idea is that there's some very, very, very good science showing that one of the drivers of aging is that these kind of old cells that have stopped doing anything but churning out bad stuff build up in your body. And Unity thinks they can make drugs that kill those cells. And that doing so, you know, in mice, there's some pretty amazing results where mice don't seem to get as old when you do this. So that's the basic idea behind the company. They're called senescent cells. So Matt, as we said at the top, you know, Unity can't develop a drug to slow aging per se. So the company chose to pursue the development of a drug for osteoarthritis. Now, longevity is a really sexy idea. Osteoarthritis, on the other hand, feels very unsexy. Can you explain the strategy behind going this route? Actually, they're not the first longevity company to do this. Samimed, which is a unicorn with an absolutely huge valuation based on small amounts of data, I guess, also went into osteoarthritis. And the reason osteoarthritis of the knee is appealing for these drugs is because a lot of the drugs, you're not sure you want to give them systemically, especially to begin with, and you can kind of localize them in the knee. And it's a disease of aging. So earlier this week, Unity announced results from its first clinical trial, and the data were not so great or hard to interpret or maybe both. Matt, walk us through the results. This is a phase one study um, and a very early study. And I think one of the issues for this company is that these are early data. They had one relatively small study where they seemed to show a big benefit on osteoporosis pain. And then they went to a smaller step study where at the highest dose used in the previous study, but over a much shorter time period, they saw a much smaller benefit that wasn't close to being significant. The purpose of that second study wasn't to get efficacy results, the company said. It was to measure 24 different factors that are associated with these senescent cells. And they told analysts that if they could move three of those, they'd be happy. And eight of them decreased, so better than Unity had said to expect, but I think what people who are not closely following senescence want from a study like this is to show that that pain benefit is repeating. So you have a situation where the company is very happy, but arguably the data are hard to interpret. And it's very difficult for people who don't already kind of believe in this mechanism to have their minds changed by the data. The stock's pretty close to where it was when the data were announced. We debated these Unity data internally before you wrote your story. And as you just said, you know, my feeling was that the data, like you said before, were exceedingly hard to interpret. Now, I don't necessarily think that's Unity's fault, but it's more about the very early nature of this research. So I wonder, why is Unity a publicly traded biotech company? If Unity were private, it would have had more time to refine the technology and gather more substantial data. I think that's a very fair question and something that companies in this space should be thinking pretty hard about. This is a really kind of big science early idea. And if there were long-term investors who'd bet on it and had put enough money in, which you can now raise a lot of money on the private market, they might have been able to do a lot of this work kind of behind the scenes. The reason this is important for this stock is this company has already lost close to half its value since it IPO'd. And this was the only clinical data on the horizon. So 
you kind of had to make a bet based on these data. And so even though the data are probably on the good side of what I think you could expect, you're a public company and investors want investable drugs with news flow and with data that's going to clearly tell you kind of the odds in the next phase of development. So speaking of those pesky investors and their desire for news flow, what's next for Unity? Where do they go from here based on these phase one results? Interestingly, they are excited about moving this drug into phase two. As we all know, that's a process that involves some discussions and figuring out what your trial design is and hopefully getting regulators to opine a little bit on what they'll eventually expect from a phase three. They're also looking at drugs in the eye, which is another nice area for regenerative medicine drugs, because again, it's contained. And, you know, it may be that diseases like glaucoma will be diseases that can be addressed by drugs that target senescence, if drugs that target senescence are actually a useful modality, which we just don't know yet. Well, Matt, keep us posted. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So Damien, Rebecca, remember a long time ago we used to do this thing called the lightning round? Really? I have no memory of any such thing. Let's do it again. (laughs) So firstly, and most importantly, is some nuptial news. Rebecca, who got married this month? So Elizabeth Holmes, the ex-Theranos CEO, allegedly got married, uh, which is lovely for her. This has not been established by any sort of concrete, hard reporting, but it seems that sources familiar with the matter have confirmed it. Uh, She married a 27-year-old hotel heir uh, named Billy Evans, and apparently her dog named Balto, who she refers to as a wolf, was at the wedding, which seems really nice. So, you know, it's important to note for context that Elizabeth Holmes, of course, is accused of a sizable fraud that left investors and patients either without money or or inconceivable medical danger. And so, you know, maybe not a hero in our society, but I did find it kind of striking the tone with which her wedding... Alleged wedding. Her alleged wedding, I suppose you should say. Yeah, the, the tone with which people reacted was just so, like, biting and cruel. I was kind of taken aback, like, we can't let her have this one thing. Yeah, my hot take here is that I hope that Billy and Elizabeth and Balto had a really nice alleged wedding. We're coming out strongly pro-Elizabeth Holmes's wedding. (laughs) We're strongly pro-alleged wedding. Right. I was going to say, I aspire to what she's achieved, which is that she's so mired in the world of like being accused of things that even her wedding must be accompanied by the phrase alleged. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on. Damien, this was a big IPO week in biotech. Tell us about it. That is correct. So there were long expected to be a ton of biotech IPOs in June. Some of them got delayed. A few are still delayed. But just as we speak, there have been three that priced this week. And it's dangerous to read the tea leaves on biotech IPOs, even though I'm guilty of doing it, because each of these companies is separate from the other. They do distinct things. They have you know, various qualities of drugs and and, and qualities of private investors going into it. But on the macro level, I think people in biotech are just generally encouraged when they see pricings continuing apace. Because what it means is that if you're on the VC side, you might get some cash for your investment. And if you're working at one of the companies, it means that, you know, the money is flowing around fairly healthily. And we're not that far removed from some 
pretty dark days at the end of last year. And so I think in general, the news in this exact moment is positive. And I'd like to note that one of those IPOs was Stoke Therapeutics, whose CEO, Ed Kay, was a guest on our podcast. So I think we played a role in his successful IPOing. So congratulations, Ed. And as a note, if you are a CEO of a biotech considering going public, come on our podcast. We should probably wait to see how Stoke Therapeutics trades over a few days before we advertise that as a benefit. I think we're going to call this segment Cat versus Guacamole. Rebecca, explain. Yeah, so our colleague Casey Ross uh, was at Harvard Medical School this week for a conference on precision medicine, and he relayed a pretty fascinating anecdote. A speaker there presented an example of where AI can go wrong and why it matters if it goes wrong in healthcare. So a Google algorithm apparently had taken a picture of a cat with a few pixels altered and classified it because of that change uh, as guacamole. I have nothing to say here other than that I like guacamole. I'm not a big cat fan. <laughs> well, you know, reaching across the aisle as someone who likes both cats and guacamole, I would say this story, it's a fascinating anecdote and, and I laughed when I read it, but it underlines something that we all know and, and that smart people have been saying for a long time, which is that any machine learning algorithm is only as good as the information you train it on. And so for this Google algorithm, it just hasn't looked at enough cats, apparently. And I think the take home message from that is that we should all be considerate when we hear about how things like machine learning and algorithms are going to transform healthcare, because you wouldn't want to get prescribed guacamole when you needed a cat. I don't know, I would have thought of a better ending of that had I presaged it. And happily, the speaker who provided this anecdote also supplied a great quote, which was in the world of medicine, quote, how do you feel when the algorithm spits out with 100% confidence that guacamole is what you need to cure what ails you? I think that's true. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and future biotech villain CEO weddings that we should feature. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. You can even send us photos of cats eating guacamole. See you next week. 